Chapter 4, Assembling the Team. Writing the script, choosing the cast, and picking the music. Sometimes I'm like, maybe I should call up some old friends and do the band thing. Jeff was comfortable with me directing his story, as he drew comparisons to this film and my treatment of the characters in cinematography and Sexually Frank. We agreed that Sexually Frank and our movie were cousins and should share a lo-fi, rough-around-the-edges sensibility. Choosing Kyle as our cinematographer was a given. And aside from Kyle Gage. It's constantly amusing that I find myself in the role of cinematographer on any project. I didn't study camera work at all in college, and I had never owned a video camera myself. I bought one recently for having fun up there. My only experience with cameras was with my dad's 80s VHS camcorder and with old mini-DV cameras in high school. I never touched one in college. After having worked with and known Frankie for a couple of years, he peripherally discussed his intention to make another movie during lunch one day. At the time, it seemed obvious that he was going to tap fellow co-worker Dan Leach as his camera guy, as he had recently acquired a 7D, at the time a revolutionary idea for filmmaking, and had shot some videos with it. I made an offhand joke that I'd be the second cinematographer, which Frankie agreed to, following along with the joke. I spread this joke to my then-girlfriend who was a cinematography student, and one of my experimental film professors, both of whom laughed it off. Their amusement ruffled me the wrong way, though. They laughed because the idea of me shooting a movie was akin to an ant painting the Mona Lisa. It was almost sacrilege to them. I think this is what drove me over the edge. I suddenly had to shoot this movie. So I did, because Frankie doesn't say no to enthusiastic help. The rest, as they say, is history akin to Ozymandias and Pericles. I went home and announced to Kyle and John that I would be making two movies this year. The first would be The Talking Cure, the Pray the Gay Away movie, to be shot in the winter with T.E. as the cinematographer, and we would shoot Jeff's script in the summer with Kyle as the cinematographer. John was pumped to do two movies. Kyle was visibly disappointed to not be involved in the first, which I think subconsciously dissuaded me from doing it. Between that, my lagging interest, and the fact that Jeff was engaging me on such an enthusiastic level about our movie meant that the talking cure quietly died while what would become having fun up there thrived. Soon after, in July 2012, Jeff contacted me with a long shot. Remember that Lloyd Kaufman documentary? I really want to get it done, and I feel awful that I haven't. It occurred to me that in my documentary about a filmmaker, we don't see him filmmaking. I've been invited to the set of his new movie, Return to Newcomb High, shooting in Niagara Falls, and I need a cameraman. I'd pay for food and motel and would drive us. You get the whole trauma thing, so I, I thought I'd ask you. It would mean short notice for time off of work, four or five days away from my wife and dogs, and potentially a bad time if I were to determine during the 16-hour round trip that Jeff was an intolerable jerk. But if I was interested in making this movie with him, wouldn't this be a great test? And even if it turned out badly, how great will it be to have spent time on a film set with my once-filmmaking hero, Lloyd Kaufman? Lloyd made Citizen Toxie in 2000, Poultry Geist in 2006, and now the Newcomb High sequel in 2012. He was in his mid-60s and making a film every six years. How many more chances like this will there be? I remember memorizing the making of documentaries that Troma put out for all of their films. I modeled my technique and style and behavior off of Lloyd and his movies. And then, you know, re refined them. They were a good starting place. The man had acted in ABO and awarded me their top prize at Troma Dance in 2006. I couldn't pass it up. I agreed. The eight-hour trip to Buffalo was filled with excited and passionate talk about filmmaking, art versus commerce, comics, student films, film school, and of course, our movie. We both made subconscious efforts to relate just about any conversation topic to the themes of having fun up there. I wish we had recorded it, but I convinced him to podcast with me later in the trip. And aside from Jeff Torelli. Want to know if you can work with someone? Drive 16 hours together and do some fun but stressful work for a couple of days while sleeping in the same motel room. 
it was trial by fire, but by the time I dropped Frankie back off at his house, I not only wasn't sick of him, but I was even more excited about making having fun up there. Day one in Tromaville was spent watching a man get set on fire, which was conducted by the stunt coordinator from the original Toxic Avenger. Later, we spent the afternoon and evening at a mansion, watching the crew shoot ducks, with a camera, and other trauma nonsense. The digital monitors displayed the best-looking trauma film I had seen to date. Lloyd Moore played the role of a thinker than a director, spending time with the New York Film Commission, location owners, and an underpaid or unpaid crew, showing gratitude for their work. The cinematographer was the one who directed the film, in the way I understand directing. Lloyd further affirmed his general coolness by encouraging us, a camera crew not affiliated with the film officially, to shoot as close as we want to the actor's crew or anything. As long as you're not in the shot, I don't care, get in there, he said. And he more than didn't care. If he saw something cool for the documentary, he started shouting at us to capture it. At one point, he flagged down the mayor of Niagara Falls and threw us at him for an interview. Lloyd's exactly the person he advertises to the world. No misrepresentation there. Our interviews with the crew told the same story again and again. Troma fanatics from around the world, working for nothing, thrilled to be working on a legendary set. Wow, they sounded like me. They all slept on the floor of a funeral home. Rumor had it that they all woke up with spider bites. But the energy was wonderful, passionate, artistic, wildly delusional, and a great time. I'm sure a good deal of the footage will find its way into Movies of the Future with Lloyd Kaufman by Jeff Torelli. After the first night, we actually did sit down in the motel for an hour and podcasted, collecting our trauma memories and relating them, once again, back to the art versus commerce conversation that was driving our friendship in film. That early conversation, available on the DVD and Blu-ray of Having Fun Up There as a commentary track, and still available as episode two of my Discount Film School podcast, is one of my favorite documents in the journey to making the film a reality. On the long drive home, I popped open the laptop and we watched one of our favorite films, American Movie, a documentary about Mark Borchardt. Coincidentally, our character was Mark as well, which I didn't even realize until later. An alcoholic Wisconsin filmmaker with dreams far bigger than his abilities. Kind of a perfect coda. Jeff was decidedly not intolerable. At a certain point, my emails with Jeff just got absurd. That's both a positive and negative aspect of close collaboration, as opposed to working as a solo writer slash director. Far more communication has to take place. We're verbose guys with lots of opinions, and we respond quickly to email, so many a morning and late night were consumed by lengthy and thoughtful exchanges about the themes we wanted to express in the movie. The first challenge would be expanding the short into a feature. I thought the short only scratched the surface of the story we could tell, and my instinct was to challenge Jeff to write a feature in which the short is only the first act. Then, we test the ideals and pathos of the character by making him live with them. It's all fine and well that at the end of the short, Mark turns away from a traditional adulthood to continue pursuing his art, but... What does that actually mean for him? What does it actually mean for millions of artists who make the same decision? When does the idealism run out and the need for a real grown-up job take over? Is there nobility or peace to be found in Mark's life as a grungy musician? Jeff and I thought so, and still think so, but we don't find it necessarily romantic and wanted to express that. So the outline took on a structure of beating Mark down, picking him back up for a moment or two, and kicking him down again. We wanted to see him suffer from his own inability to grow up like the rest of the world. We wanted to see a character incapable of the change we typically demand from our protagonists, but who finds peace in what works, his art. But with a feature, we needed more. I knew that I would be directing a film about movie making, even if it was written about music, because that's how I related to the content. So I looked inward and questioned how I was feeling 14 years into filmmaking. Mark is older than me. He's Jeff's age, somewhere in his late 30s. But even at 27, I was starting to feel myself age creatively. 
I began making films as a child, then continued into high school, then went to film school, twice, and now here I was, out of school and occupying a new role, the guy who's been at it for a while. I was no longer new to film, and no longer a pupil. On occasion, I would get contacted by younger folks or newcomers to filmmaking who only wanted to do what I had already done, make their own films. I established a relationship with one in particular, a 17-year-old from Oklahoma named Jade Harris. Jade's gateway drug was Doug Bergdorf, cinematographer of Abo the Humonkey, former roommate, famous Vimeo filmmaking personality, director of many twisted and surreal films, and a good friend, who opened Jade to visual and storytelling styles that unshackled his inner filmmaker. Most aspiring high school-age filmmakers have The Big Lebowski, Pulp Fiction, Donnie Darko, or Requiem for a Dream. Jade had Doug. Sadly, Doug is a relatively private individual who doesn't care to talk or be interviewed about his work. He's sitting on a few gems I've had the privilege of seeing that he won't release publicly, or even pass privately, because he's unhappy with them. Philosophically, I'm on the other side of the spectrum. As evidenced by this book, I want nothing more than to talk about what went into making our films in the hope that it will enable a younger, cooler, and or smarter person to do the same. Or an older, lamer, dumber person, for that matter. As I said, I support making as much art as one can reasonably make in a lifetime. Not to say Doug doesn't, but he's a bit precious about his work. Not to say I'm not. We're just different. Following Doug's filmography led Jade to Abo, and then to me, where he generously devoured every video blog, writing, animation, film, and podcast I had created. Aaron St. Laurent and I had just begun a weekly podcast, so I was producing more regular content than ever before, and Jade took a chance and contacted me. He guest starred on the podcast a few times, offered enthusiastic feedback every week, and gave me all-around positive attention. In return, I acted as a sounding board for whatever projects he was developing, and tried to lend as much experience and advice as I could. This mentor-pupil relationship was new for me, and offered fresh perspective on my future as an artist. If I may be snobby for a moment, André Bazin was a French film theorist who believed that photography, more than anything, was done in an effort to preserve or mummify reality, to extend our mortality. I think creatively, that's more or less where my head was for a while. If you asked me what I wanted from my art, I probably would have said that I want it to survive and be watched beyond my own death, to leave behind a library of Frankie Frayne films. Working with Jade changed my relationship to filmmaking some. It gave me a responsibility not just to my art, but to other artists. I was influencing this kid's college and life decisions with what I said to him and how I presented it. Moreover, whenever I published a podcast, posted a video, or came out with something new, I knew there was at least one committed audience member, and that pushed me to generate content at a more aggressive rate throughout 2012. With every new project I released, there was at least one person, who I wasn't married to, who anxiously awaited. So what about our protagonist, Mark? He's been playing local music for more than 20 years, doing it for himself, because it's certainly not for a successful career or for, I don't know, girls, and presumably developing his talent across that time. What if he had a jade? How might that impact him to become someone's mentor? Surely he's never thought of himself that way. How does this change his relationship to his art? Jeff liked the idea, and more so preferred the idea of making her female and presenting a very honest, platonic relationship in the film. That excited me. I think there could be a love and an intimacy in this mentor-pupil relationship, but why should that have to be romantic? It was complex and unusual for a narrative, but honest and simple. Exactly the sort of thing we were aiming for. I was excited to cast this part. Young, talented women would often audition or volunteer for my films in the past, but I would either lack a good part for them or fill the part with a personal friend. We'll see how that develops. Jeff lent a little more autobiographical content in his depiction of Carla, Mark's romantic interest, referred to in early discussions as Disaster Girl, another necessary addition in expanding the short into a feature. 
Based on a couple of sloppy years of Jeff's life, Carla was an alcoholic musician who ran in most of the same band circles as Mark, and who was the same age and equally lost in her adulthood. It wasn't long before we recognized her as the female mirror image of Mark, at least in many ways, and we delighted in making the characters unable to see or fix their own flaws, but to spot one another's with ease. If nothing else, we knew we wanted Mark to be a heavy drinker who, at one point, accuses Carla of being a lush. On the topic of alcohol, there was a good deal of it in the story and in Jeff's descriptions of the settings. The final script had 54 occurrences of the word beer, 36 occurrences of drink, drinking or drunk, and 26 occurrences of bottle or jug. This might be the first indication that I didn't pen the screenplay. I'm not a drinker, never have been, and can't write or speak with authority on the subject. But moreover, those written descriptions may have a reader believe the drinking is more prevalent in the story than I intended it to be in the execution of the visuals. For instance, if I write in a script, Mark had a beer in his hand, I'm calling attention to the beer. Whereas if we simply watch Mark in a bar, talking with someone, and he happens to have a beer in his hand, it's less emphasized. Without drawing special attention to the alcohol, I wanted the audience to slowly notice that every time we see Mark, he's drinking, unless he's at work or under some obligation to not drink. That, to me, is a more powerful depiction of a dependency, and the more at home they look with the bottle, the better. Jeff was in total agreement there. It's so, so easy for certain subjects to slip into after-school special territories when writing. Drinking, alcoholism, rehab, etc. are on the top of the list. In the years I spent playing music, and with the type of people I know and have hung out with, it was just weird to not see someone with a beer or something else in their hand if they weren't holding an instrument. So it made this kind of weird unspoken thing when someone suddenly went over the edge, had to go to rehab, or was just genuinely destroying their life due to substances. You had people having conversations like, yeah... Maybe she needs help while opening their fifth beer. Or people who would take someone to a bar after they got out of rehab so they could celebrate. That kind of thing. I thought it was an interesting dynamic, but not one I wanted the movie to be based on. For writing purposes, there could have been a dramatic scene where Mark goes to visit Carla in rehab. In fact, an earlier draft had just that. But it suddenly became a focal point and had this false bravado where the drama was now explicitly about substance abuse. Nope. That's not what we're going for. So I changed it to a phone call, and a rather upbeat one. Not only is it less after-school specially, but it sets up this happy feeling of, hey, she's getting help, everything's going to be great, which then is broken a little later by a parallel phone call. Jeff and I remained unsatisfied with the script and banged on it more. A defining moment in breaking the story occurred in a late-night whiteboard meeting. Any screenwriting class, book, or workshop will tell you to write story beats on index cards, tape them to the wall, and then remove them or add new ones as you try to sculpt and refine the movie. This always seemed a bit gimmicky and useless to me. Why was outlining in a Word document unsatisfactory? Well, I confess, this was very helpful in collaborating with another person. Having some workable, tangible story beats on a wall to move around as we discussed was invaluable. I've written a good number of screenplays in my life, and no matter what, I always fall victim to an amateur writer's mistake. I call it the thing you thought was necessary but wasn't at all. For instance, in the original script, Mark had a bandmate who was also his roommate. At a rehearsal, the roommate reveals that she's getting married and will need Mark to move out. Mark moves in with an old friend who's doing well for himself, and Mark lives out the rest of the film in that apartment. Mark's apartment dilemma led to an annoying amount of exposition and character fatigue. Old roommates, new roommates, the way it impacts the band, etc. And that all deviated from the central story. Jeff and I banged our heads against the wall trying to combine characters, de-emphasize characters, simplify the exposition, until we finally asked, why do we need any of this? Can't Mark just already live someplace? Can't his roommate just be someone we never even see because they're on totally different schedules? A normal schedule and a stunted alcoholic schedule? 
Can't his band just be his band and we eliminate all the roommate stuff? Once we tore up a few index cards, we were free of all that nonsense. I encourage all writers to run their scripts through the do I need any of this machine before shooting it. So often you think you need certain story elements because you meant to make them relevant, but never did. So cut them. I'm trying to be the voice of all things writing in this. So let me reiterate Frankie's do I need any of this machine. As I've said elsewhere, it's especially necessary if you're writing something even remotely autobiographical. You can become tied to certain vivid memories or small things you think are important that really don't add anything to the story. Unless you are truly writing an autobiography, and please, maybe don't, because there are too many of these in the world at the moment, as it seems every young, self-obsessed person in the world thinks screenwriting or book authoring is just another word for personal blog. Repeat to yourself over and over again. I am writing a narrative, not an autobiography. Write what you know, kid, is still very true. It will help you with the details. But unless you are explicitly doing so, you are not writing your life story. You're taking experiences and using them as fodder for what will hopefully be a tight and relatable story. Take it for granted that if it serves your themes or characters better to totally change a scene that started out as a first-hand experience, then you will do it. If you're too close to a project, get some readers you trust, but who may not know a ton about you, to read over the script and tear it apart. They don't care if something actually happened, they just want to help you make a cohesive tale. Step outside of yourself as much as possible, and remember, everything has to be in service of the story, and not anything that may have actually happened. And yes, the index cards on the whiteboard is one of the few hokey kind of screenwriting book tricks that I think is actually helpful. When we mustered up a first draft, I sent it out to over 30 interested people for notes and feedback. I was loving the movie, and it was time to see if anyone agreed. Very few people returned with notes. Most didn't read it at all. Reading is hard. Those who did were lukewarm at best. I remember John Hunt's IM to me. I read the first draft. I hate to go against the grain, but I, I don't much care for it, and I think it has a ton of problems. And aside from John Hunt. Coming off Sexually Frank and Vibes, I was super excited to start on another project. Until having fun up there, after every film we made, Frankie would always say he wasn't sure he would ever do another, and I was always pleased whenever a new one came along. Sexually Frank had ideas and scenes that were very dear to my heart. It's one of my favorite relationship films, and while I loved Abo and Ten Pounds in their ways, Sexually Frank was the film I was really proud to be involved with, and I loved the script from the first time I read it. At the time I read this draft, however, just as Frankie was starting to build energy for the project, I kind of felt like I was killing the momentum. For me, the story didn't really move anywhere, and I found that initially frustrating. It had no one for me to connect with, whereas I could relate to everyone in Sexually Frank. I asked him to at least document his notes. The detailed comments were good. There were some mechanical and logic problems that needed sorting out. For instance, we met Carla in the first act, and then the next time we hear from her, she was off-camera in rehab. We needed another scene to establish the Mark and Carla relationship before trucking her off to rehab. But his and others' issues seemed to center on the elusive conundrum of likability. Mark should have the power to fix his own life, but can't. Rooting for him becomes difficult, as he's kind of hopeless. Protagonists can be flawed, but they're not usually inherently and irreparably unlikable. But it's an unusual trait for film characters and more true to life, so I was inclined to it. Jeff described Mark to me initially as, your friend who you love but can't defend. Likeable characters who we can live vicariously through are great, but I much prefer Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler or Mark Burchard in American Movie, although the latter wasn't fiction, but you get the idea. Still, our handful of script readers took issue with the non-ending, zoomed in on the alcohol details, and in some cases, missed the point entirely. 
I had a note from a good friend and respected screenwriter to increase the conflict by making Mark and the platonic pupil become romantically involved. To do that, to even propose it as a thing that could happen, misses the tone and purpose of the film entirely. This has happened on most of my films. I know that the final product will not have the issues the readers are taking with the script because it'll be executed the way we intend and not the way they're interpreting it. And I've consistently been right. Not to say I don't go through another round of criticism with the rough cut, but issues I panicked about during the script writing tend not to even get brought up when viewing the final edit, while all kinds of new issues, often related to time constraints of the production, get pointed out. Except this time, I hadn't written the script, so my confidence that I would make it work in the final film wasn't as high, and it really made me wonder how great of an idea it was to direct someone else's piece. I was briefly deterred, and I think Jeff was too, as our correspondence slowed for a moment. But we went back and hammered on it some more, as the lengths of our emails escalated to new, unreadably long sizes. Negative feedback can both deflate and inflate. It takes a little strength, but once you face down each note, it's fun to solve the problems. And if you woefully disagree with a note, it can be invigorating to double down and commit to what you're attempting. This was amplified by being able to collaborate in solving problems, when in the past, this had been a lonelier process. I was reminded how important it was to express myself through someone else's story, as Jeff's life experience lent genetic variation to what could otherwise be another Frankie Frayne movie. And aside from Jeff Torelli. I was for sure briefly deterred. Up until this first round of comments came back, it had been a very insular development of story. Frankie was nice enough to mostly leave me up to my own devices, but we'd meet and talk about specifics, and he'd lend his ideas. Which was a very good thing, as the Berkeley Girl plotline would have not existed without his input, and the movie would have been a lot more one-note. Like Frankie says above, negative feedback can be good and bad. It hurts to have something you've put a lot of time and effort into get torn apart, but it is absolutely helpful. If enough people are saying that they're not getting a certain plot point or that a certain scene isn't working, you need to take a hard look at it. What's clear to you as a writer can still be totally unclear to a viewer or reader. Remember, you have access to every draft of this script there has ever been in your head. You know exactly what you're trying to say, but if it's not somewhere on that paper, it doesn't matter. Criticism sometimes reaffirms the places you're right. For instance, Carrie is not in that story to be a love interest. That's not at all what the relationship was about. So when it was suggested that they hook up and my eyes nearly rolled out of my head, I knew that was a strong reaction on my part. Sink or swim, that's not what was going to happen. In short, criticism can reveal what your gut feels most strongly about and what you are the most sure about. There were a number of references to the fall, and we knew that New Bedford and Boston would lend a beautifully decayed autumn setting to the film. We scheduled shooting for September 28th to October 6th. The nine-day concept wasn't arbitrary. In my three prior features, we had never done that kind of consecutive shooting. Those films were shot across weekends and holidays, years in the case of 10 Pounds, a winter in the case of Abo, and a summer in the case of Sexually Frank. On Abo, we shot 35 of 92 pages across a five-day winter vacation, and the rest on weekends. I remember being exhausted at the end of those five days, especially when returning to work and school. Now I was about to do the same thing, but tacking on four extra days and calling it done. When Nina broke down the props, locations, and actors necessary per scene, I did my usual work of estimating time needed to shoot, travel, and arrange for people, and I came out with nine days, to my surprise. I thought it would be more, but this would actually be our shortest script, about 80 pages, and simplest logistics to date, so it made sense. And aside from Kyle Gage. Don't shoot all 80 pages of low-budget movie in nine consecutive days if you don't have to. In the case of having fun up there, we had to do it because getting our main actor, John Ryan, meant flying him across the country to us. It was impossible to fly him back and forth to break up the shooting schedule, so we had to do it all in one stretch. 
everyone core to the movie had to be on top of his or her game for over a week, with minimal downtime for planning between shoots. Sexually Frank, on the other hand, took 16 days to shoot, spread out over several long weekends. This led to a relaxed set, even though many of our days contained a lot of traveling and shooting. The time in between shoots gave everyone breathing room, and the advantage of pre-planning between shooting days. As a cinematographer, this meant spending a couple of days before a shoot thinking about potential shot composition, thinking about how to use upcoming locations, etc. Shooting in a long, consecutive stretch is definitely possible. We did it, but never preferable, at least for me. While I did have a great time, it did have a physical and mental cost for everyone involved. As we finished refining the script, it was time to tackle the boring part of the movie, preparing the shoot. This entails counting and gathering each prop, costume, actor, extra, and location. We also had some technical problems to work out in the way of camera readiness and workflow. Besides myself, the producers would be Jeff and Nina on the practical side and John and Kyle on the technical side. Nina always quietly prepares the boring details for each movie, a thankless but invaluable job, making runs to thrift stores, Walmart, our basement, whatever. She's thorough and prompt, but I threw a wrench in her works on this film. I asked her to work off of Google Docs so that everyone could keep up to date with what was collected and completed and what wasn't. In her medical job, Nina mostly works with paper records, and I would generally define her as lo-fi. While I thought this would be an easier and clearer workflow, it just messed her up. And when script pages and scene numbers changed as we finished the script, it caused some heartache and a lot of confusion. Jeff was an unusual but extremely welcome addition to the production team, as Nina was able to defer to him to gather all music-specific props he wrote into the script, and I was able to rely on him to gather extras and musicians for parts. This is where working with new people is handy. They have an entirely different set of friends and connections than you do. Jeff, Johnny Northrup, and Mike Gowell, for instance, would make up Mark's band, the same members of an old band they used to play in together that wrote and performed a good deal of music that would end up in the final film. If Jeff wrote a musical prop or four-track recorder or album into the script, it was his to track down. He was also able to point us toward beautifully rich filming locations, like In Your Ear Music in Alston or Radio in Somerville, record stores, music stores, and bars that were in his mind when writing. So he took responsibility for a lot of what made the film authentic, and if he ran into obstacles, they were his to rewrite. That same night of the index cards, we talked a little about what the music, in this movie about music, was going to be like. That was always going to be a challenge. We're depicting musicians and music lovers in the film, and therefore we need to play some music. But music is perhaps one of the most subjective and snobby art forms of them all. How do we reasonably convince the audience that the music we select is competent enough to believe the characters? Thankfully, I had Jeff, who, like Mark, was 30 years into playing and loving music. I assumed he or his friends could either compose or lend music to the film. The most important piece would be the one we hear at the end, a song that Mark has been slowly working on throughout the film that symbolizes the very small amount he's developed as an artist and person. Jeff described Mark as a lover of all genres and styles, at least he loves some of everything, and so he has an intertextual, mutt-like style in his work. What's that last song going to be, I asked. Well, there's a song by a buddy of mine. We were in a bunch of bands together. He's my best friend from way back. He just recorded this song called Snow Day with his new band, and I just think it's a blast. It's kind of poppy, but with a punk influence, but you can even hear, like, Jackson 5 and the Beach Boys. I mean, I'm, I'm totally open to whatever for that last song, but I was thinking something like this. When I was younger, the winters were much colder, and now I've got to wonder what happened to the snow. Jeff played Snow Day by Johnny Northrup and his band, JQ, on some lame laptop speakers. It's a strange and rare feeling to go from having no idea what something should be to knowing exactly what it should be. But one listen to Snow Day did it. He was right. 
It was a song you couldn't argue with. The way I described Carrie and Mark's relationship applies here. Complex and unusual, but honest and simple. You mean he doesn't mind us using this in our movie? Well, I'll ask him, but we are best friends. I imagine he'll be psyched. And aside from Jeff Torelli. Johnny's my best friend and someone I made music with from age 19 to about 33 or 34. He's super talented and I'm one of his biggest fans. His music works perfectly for our movie because he was part of those experiences I harnessed from the past to create the world in the movie. Frankie had never heard Johnny's stuff before and agreed. It also helped a lot in our movie that Mark, the lead character, is based on an amalgamation of myself, Johnny, and a few other musicians I know, so it makes sense that Mark would make music like Johnny's. This, again, is something kind of rare to us in this particular situation. Music is really, really important, as I'm sure you know. Just because your friend makes some and it's free, it doesn't necessarily mean you should use it. Again, if you think you're too biased to be a judge, show a rough cut with the music to people who don't know it's your friends. Get some honest feedback. Get it tattooed on your forehead if necessary. Everything in service of the movie story. JQ had a Bandcamp site with a free embed of Snow Day. I listened to it on loop the night I heard it, and many days after that. Not only did I like the song, but it unlocked the tone of the whole film for me. In my mind, the story finally had a beat to march to. We ultimately incorporated some subtle dialogue about snow days between Mark and Carrie, the platonic pupil, indicating that the inspiration for Mark's little opus was Carrie. The viewer has to listen to the lyrics and connect it back to the dialogue, but it's there. One of my other early stipulations in making this film was that we cast John Ryan as Mark. I didn't know whether or not he could pull off the instrument playing in the movie, and I didn't care. To direct a script I didn't write, I needed a few footholds to make it my own, and casting my old-time actor and friend was obvious. As co-stars of a college stage production, I cast John, at first reluctantly, as the villain in Abo, and then as an abrasive gay man, at first reluctantly, in Sexually Frank. But John made no bones about expressing his love for those projects and working with the gang. Still, he lived in California. Having a more grown-up job than I had previously had on other projects, I booked his tickets and flew him out on my dime. Jeff didn't know John and was naturally hesitant to sign off on someone he hardly knew, but he quickly saw that he and John shared vocal cadence, humor, and most importantly, the same weirdly stiff, wavy hair. On set, Jeff's girlfriend referred to John as the actor playing Jeff. It's impossible for me to say enough good things about John Ryan. I had never met him until our first day on set, and as soon as he started, he was nailing it. He got Mark. His speech patterns were eerily similar to the way I read lines out loud while writing. His improvs are some of the funniest parts of the movie. Yeah? You like the show? You have a good time? Want well with the Demerol? He was almost always even keel on set, and he was prepared every day. He's also just a super friendly and funny guy. Since this book is about filmmaking, I need to say this. You, in your low-to-no-budget filmmaking, will probably not be as lucky to get a John Ryan. This is a guy who went to work one day, got on a red eye, flew across the country, was picked up at the airport, and then started shooting for nine days. When Frankie or Kyle or I were tired or jumpy or in a foul mood after days of work, we could scowl from behind the camera. John couldn't. How he did it, I don't know. I was terribly afraid we'd go back and see the effects of that week on him throughout the film, and you just don't. Frankie called action, and John became Mark, and there is barely a trace of the fatigue of a nine-day shoot in the character throughout the whole movie. Again, you probably won't get a John Ryan. Think long and hard about shooting a full length in nine days if you don't have to. Cass and Carrie frustrated me quicker than I thought, as I saw a few strange and inadequate young actresses from Craigslist-type sites. But at my job, I had been working alongside Hannah Carpenter, who also became my employee before we started shooting. I wanted to have a real and honest affection for Carrie, 
I wanted her to be someone who possessed an intelligent youthfulness, who deserves respect but in no way commands it. I wanted her to be funny and engaged, someone who fits in a world of young, college-age music files, but stands apart from them as well. Hana, an audio-turned-interactive media student, now working in Networking and Systems Administration, my point, she's not an actress, was all these things to me and more. Just the way I met Kyle before Sexually Frank, Hana was a no-brainer. I asked her if she would do it. Sure, it might be fun. I've never been in a movie. She wasn't entirely in love with the script, and in fact refused to say anything nice about it, repeating that she'd have to see it when it's done, or that she didn't know how it would come out, which was hard for me to hear. Kyle and I asked her to read on camera, and she was able to be a slightly muted version of her exuberant but natural self when reading. I was satisfied. Plus, as her boss, I could grant her the time off. Kyle, Hannah, and I all work on the same team, so all of us disappearing for five business days was a bit scary, but we quickly saw that Hannah wasn't required in every shoot the way Kyle and I were. So the plan was, when she wasn't shooting, she would cover the office for us. Genius. We rigged the system. And aside from Kyle Gage. A recurring theme here is recruiting coworkers and friends to work on creative projects. Frankie has mentioned it already, but it bears repeating. Don't be afraid to involve the people around you. More often than not, a really good solution to a problem or idea can be found in people you work with every day or in a friend you've known for years. All it really takes for someone to excel on a movie set is the enthusiasm to get things done and have a good time. Furthermore, having people you know, rather than trying to hire professionals, always makes the set more comfortable. It's easier to shape the experience when you're all in it together and have more than one bond between you. The final member of the main players to be cast was Carla. The part went to Maria Natapov, an actress I had worked with very briefly on Vibes. Her part on that short film was to scream in a Russian accent off-screen, but I remembered that for such a quick and pointless part, she showed up on time, was enthusiastic and friendly, and took the stupidity very seriously. I also remember her popping up in a number of MFA thesis films. She was clearly a dedicated actress interested in being in everything and anything to further her experience in real. Sometimes you don't want to cast people like this. It's an indication that they'll be too torn from your project, more interested in whatever else they're committed to, and may drop your project at a moment's notice. I also wasn't convinced that she looked or felt the part, but as I scrolled through dozens of headshots on NewEnglandActor.com and scrolled a bit quickly past the Russian voiceover actress, I felt obligated to give her a shot. I emailed her and asked if she wanted to do a Skype audition. A quick word on Skype auditions for the filmmakers out there. They're useful and you should do them. Filmmakers and actors are in weird spots. Neither wants their time wasted, and having to travel just to meet one another for 15 minutes, most often just to say no, is a waste of time. And if they're parking in a city... A waste of their money. And they have none. They're unpaid, non-union actors. So that's not cool. The disadvantage to Skype auditions, of course, is that you aren't able to test if the person is punctual or reliable. Well, unless they blow the Skype audition time. If they can't show up in their PJs to a laptop on time, don't cast them. Anyway, Maria was beyond pumped to audition, which encouraged my choice to reach out to her. Then the audition. She lent a grounded and believable identity to the character. Something honest, but heightened, with an almost invented regional dialect that wasn't quite Massachusetts, but evoked towniness. Some of the writing of the character we were struggling with, she shouldn't be too drunk, but not too stable, but not too ridiculous, but pretty ridiculous, but we have to believe he would like her, but he has to be an idiot for liking her, was solved in that performance. Folks, writing is important, but I contend that character performance is more important. An impression a reader can get from a script might be entirely different from their impression of the character once performed. Don't just cast people who fit the writing. Cast someone who's going to help you fix the writing. Maria expressed one major fear. She wasn't a musician. But my boyfriend is, she was quick to tell me. 
There was only one scene in the movie in which she needed to play and sing anyway, but it was her reveal, so it was meant to establish the character. Maria shared a song her boyfriend John, who would ultimately act in the film, wrote and performed. It was kind of hard rock, definitely not appropriate for a quiet acoustic moment, but she suggested that she could work out an acoustic version. I asked her to, and she said she would right away, but it would be another month or so before I got anything, and it was very bad. She said she would continue to work on it, but that was the last I heard about the song before I was pulled into all of the other details of the production. Maria suggested that we make an internal Facebook group to post updates, thoughts, schedules, prop lists, and discussions. I did, and suddenly we had a core team, and the production was becoming real. The group was created on July 20th, 2013. We had two months and eight days to go.